Welcome to the Object-Oriented UX Podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head-on, gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, facilitating cross-functional collaboration like a boss, iterating strategically and designing scalable, future-proof, and of course, naturally intuitive object-oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, user experience designer and chief evangelist for Object Orient UX. I've taught OUX to companies big and small and to thousands of individual designers like you, and I am honored to be your host. What's up, OUXers? I hope you enjoyed the first few episodes of the podcast. I, I'm really enjoying it. Just getting going here. So many of these first episodes, the solo episodes without a guest, are going to serve as a bit of a OUX primer, as well as revisiting some of my first articles on object UX, kind of giving you the audio tour of those articles and updating them because Some of those first articles uh, came out a while ago and the process has evolved. So if you haven't listened to the first episode um, and you are new to OUX, I would encourage you to back up and listen to that first episode. Um, Maybe the second episode too, which is a little bit of an audio workshop, which will really kind of help you get your hands dirty with OUX. This episode should stand on its own, but it'll make a lot more sense if you go back and listen to those first two episodes. So the first episode sort of gives you the lay of the land of OUX, why I I love putting objects first in my process and do a lot of modeling before I actually go into screen design. And it gives you the basics on how I do it using the ORCA process. The ORCA process stands for objects, relationships, calls to action, and attributes. In those first two episodes, I don't really get a lot, I don't spend a lot of time on the sea of Orca. (laughs) So um, this is what this episode is all about, is really getting into the sea of Orca because CTAs are really the bridge from this object-first way of thinking into interaction design. So this episode, it's all about that bridge and how the CTA matrix, this artifact that we use in, uh, in the ORCA process, can provide a really great foundation for designing all the interaction that is going to happen in your system. So it's a recreation of this article that I wrote in 2016, but I've updated it quite a bit for this podcast. So I'm going to link to the original article in the show notes, but please know, just like that first episode, this is not a direct reading. I'm going to be adding lib. I'm going to be giving you quite a bit of updates on um, on how I actually go about digging into the sea of orca, digging into the sea of orca, the sea as in cat of orca, um, not a sea of orcas. Um, so this is going to get into that call to action matrix, um, how we sort of look at objects each object in our system by user role. Um, So it's changed quite a bit from 2016. It would be weird if it hadn't changed since 2016, right? Um, So, okay, let's just jump into it. All right, so imagine you're designing a social network that helps chefs trade recipes um, that require exotic ingredients. This is one of my favorite examples. I love talking about chefs and recipes. It's just such a good... uh, a, a good vehicle to help understand OUX because everybody knows what a chef is. Everybody knows what a recipe is. 
everybody knows what an ingredient is and all those things are kind of nice and um, nice and chunky with uh, with content and metadata. Okay, so imagine you're designing this social network. You're being tasked, um, you're working as a UX designer at a startup um, that is creating this new social network for chefs. So with good old fashioned research, you develop this nice solid persona, the innovator chef who's working in a gourmet restaurant and you confirm the space in the market. So you got product market fit, you understand the industry, you understand the project goals. You know, check, check, check. You've defined the problem clearly. So what's next? Where would you start designing? What would you what would you do? <laughs> Just and actually pause, maybe pause and think about this. What would you do first after you've sort of felt like you have a really nice set of research in front of you? Do you start sketching? Maybe you start sketching an engaging onboarding process for chefs. So, like, what is the first thing that they do when they when they come to this um, when they come to this application? We do need chefs to make this thing successful, right? So, we need to have a really great onboarding experience. No chefs, no network. So, so maybe we start by making that first interaction really amazing. That seems like a really good place to start. Start at the beginning, right? Or maybe you start with one of the most frequent activities. So chefs are only going to get started once. So maybe that's not the place to start. Maybe you want to start with how a chef posts a new recipe, right? So they're going to be posting new recipes all the time, hopefully, right? That's going to be a good success metric if they're consistently posting good recipes. Let's, Let's do that flow. Let's start there. Let's start sketching out how to post a new recipe. And this could easily lead you maybe to the browsing experience. So how will other chefs find new recipes? Maybe by ingredient. So, okay, I've got um, I've got kumquats, all right? <laughs> so what do I do with all these kumquats, these seasonal kumquats? Let me go look at recipes by that particular ingredient. As you sketch, you might feel a little lost or overwhelmed, right? As you're starting, like you might be asking like, am I starting in the right place? Will these screens even make sense? You might start peeking at similar applications or experiences to leverage some UI that you like. So you've already done your competitive analysis for product market fit, but maybe now you're just gonna kind of look at other social networks. So you might do some um, some comparative analysis, some, some not necessarily your direct competitors, you might just be kind of going and getting expired, inspi- expired? inspired by some other UI that you like. And you might have feeling the moments of feeling really genius and in flow state as, as these ideas start to take shape and you kind of piece some of your best practices together and screens start to come to life. Um, this is a really exciting part of the process, right? So regardless of any mixed feelings of imposter syndrome and creative pride, you know, waffling back and forth between these, soon your whiteboard is filled up with boxes and arrows and you're orchestrating this dance and it's really starting to shape take shape this is me three or four years ago this is the way i would start i would start by storytelling Um, i would start by storyboarding a critical user path i would start with that doing how does somebody start getting some things done in this system so i probably would using the example before i'd probably start with this create new recipe flow that's probably where i'd start with a really frequent flow and one that we know that we need um, kind of like a, a back, we feel like a backbone of the system. Okay, how does it? How does a chef create a new recipe? Let's design that first, and we'll kind of hinge everything else off of that, off of that main user, like sub-user journey. So while figuring out this interaction design, 
Here's the, here's the thing though. I'd also be figuring out the structure and the nature of the recipe. Does it have a difficulty level? Should chefs have the ability to record video of the recipe creation? Um, or does that video need to be short videos for each step? So I might start sketching out, okay, a, a, a big video up at the top of the page and then think, mm, what if they were shorter, like 20 second clips and we would break it out by each individual step and I would sketch that out and I would kind of sketch what a step looked like in the recipe and maybe a, a step had a number and a video and then a caption and it would include all the ingredients you need in that step. So I imagine many other user experience designers begin the same way. Does that, does that sound kind of familiar at least? That's somewhat how you might start? Um, unless you're already using OOUX, that's probably not how you start. <laughs> Spoiler. All right, so this is how a lot of us start, by designing how someone would use a thing. Makes sense, we're user experience designers, right? So let's design the experience. Um, and when we think of experience, we think very like uh, procedurally, very linearly, like what is that? What is that story that we are, that that user is going to be um, engaging with? So one interaction flow leads the design to another interaction flow. So you have this web of flows, you iterate on those flows, add some persistent navigation, check off the box for information architecture, wink, wink, right? Um, maybe you extract some design patterns or pull from your design system to leverage some existing design patterns. Um, and then, so once your wireframes that go from one flow or feature or user story um, into another, they're sort of in a good place, development starts implementing. And, and actually, it might even happen a little bit differently than this. If you're in an agile environment, maybe you just do the create recipe flow. So you're just going to do that one flow. How does a, how does a chef create a recipe? and then that starts going into development. And then you start doing the browse recipe experience. How do other chefs find recipes? And you design that, and then that goes into development. And then you say, okay, what is the creation process? What is the chef creation process? How does a chef uh, create an instance of themselves? How do they create an account in the system? And then that's the next sprint. All right, so these sprints are basically already, you kind of maybe did some user stories, the sprints were broken out, you designed all the screens for that user story, that goes into development, and you're on to the next user story. All right, so maybe your your life looks something like that, okay? Um, the problem with that is, this is what I call iterating on functionality instead of iterating on fidelity. The problem with that is, is you design the flow for the create recipe, and then when you're in browsing recipes, you think of a new piece of metadata that needs to go from a browsing perspective that somebody might want to browse by. But when you were thinking about how the chef was creating a recipe, you didn't think about that piece of metadata or you didn't think about that side of the experience. So now you kind of need to go back and change something on the create recipe flow to add, let's just say adding difficulty level. You didn't think about that when you were, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't captured in any kind of user story. You didn't go to that level of detail. So level of difficulty is something that you thought of later. And then maybe it goes into a backlog. Like, okay, I want to add level of difficulty, but it wasn't in the creation process. So now it can't be in the browse process. Um, another thing is, is you might have an order. You might actually show like, what does a recipe look like once a chef has finished creating it. And you might have a visual prioritization of all of those attributes of a recipe. 
Um, so video, title, level of difficulty, date created. But then when you, you've sort of shipped that <laughs> over to development and now you're thinking about the browse experience and you're designing all these recipe cards that somebody might see in a recipe list. Um, we might even say like a recipe catalog or something like that. And now you decide you put the date created at the top and then you put the video and then you put the title and then level of difficulty doesn't, you don't see that until you go into the detail page. So all of your attributes sort of get mixed up. Um, and this is what we call a shapeshifter in OUX. So for not really any good reason, the, the object, the recipe ends up manifesting itself differently in the creation flow than it does in the browse flow. And chefs are doing both of these things. They're creating and browsing so for other recipes. So what we end up with is two visual manifestations of the recipe. When maybe if we thought more structurally beforehand, we could have one. So we've added extra design work. We've added extra development work. And we've added extra cognitive load on the user. So this is why I don't think this is the best way to break up your sprints. All right. Okay. Back to the script, totally went off script there. So other than that problem, here's another problem with this action first approach. We're designing our actions without a clear picture of what is being acted upon. So we're designing how a chef creates a recipe before defining a recipe. We're designing maybe the substitute ingredient finder feature before really understanding the structure and nature of an ingredient in the context of the system we are designing. So it's like the sentence, Sally kicked. We've got our subject, the user, and we've got our verb, the action. But what's the object? Sally kicked what? The ball, her brother, a brain hungry zombie? What is Sally kicking? So when we jump right into the actions, we run the risk of designing a digital system without super crystal clear objects. And as it turns out, our brains really hate environments without these super crystal clear objects. So we evolved to survive by clearly identifying things. This is, this is how we survive, by clearly identifying things, end of story. Um, so imagine walking into a forest where you can't tell the difference between the flowers and the mushrooms or the difference between the bears and the deer or the cliffside in a fresh babbling brook. All right. You're not going to survive very long. So since digital places are not beholden to the laws of physics, it's really easy for us digital designers to design places where it's hard for users to tell what the things are which is absolutely critical to a good user experience. So if we don't get really clear on what the things are in our system, how can we expect that our users will, will ever be able to? Just think about that for a second. If we don't really know what the things are, if we haven't gotten really clear on our team and that we're all speaking the same language, right? That what I call the thing is the same thing as what the developer calls the thing, which is the same thing that the business owner calls the thing, that is the same thing that marketing calls the thing. If we're not all on the same page about that, there's absolutely no way that we're going to create a really great, clear user experience. It's naturally intuitive. We're just not. You're just not going to be able to. <laughs> or it's going to be a real uphill battle and, and maybe you'll, you'll get lucky somehow. But we've got to get really clear on those things so that we can translate that and create software that is also really clear on those things. So when we jump straight into all that doing, 
we run this really big risk of creating environments with confusing and shape-shifting objects. So by clearly defining the objects in our users' real-world problem domain, we can create more tangible and relatable user experiences. So these days, a whole lot happens before I start sketching user flows. Okay, and in this episode, by the way, I use the term user flow and interaction flow interchangeably, also user story, basically the conversation that happens with the user, the back and forth where users are getting stuff done. Okay, and I have to say, this getting stuff done is the most important thing, all right? You can have objects, really clear objects all day, but if the user can't get anything done with those objects, then there's absolutely no point. So when I say I take an objects first approach, I am not saying that objects are more important than the actions. I'm just saying that figuring out your objects first is gonna make your interaction design so much better and so much more clear. So because those actions are so important, we've gotta do this object definition work first. Okay, so just that caveat, I'm not saying objects are more important. If anything, they're less important, okay? But you can't get to really clear interaction design without clear objects. It's just really hard to get there. I think it's impossible to get there. I think that this is why technology sucks, basically. <laughs> okay, all right, back to the script, back to the script. Okay, let's go back to Sally Kicked. Like many of you, during research, I first define my user and I ask, who's Sally? Okay, cool, we're on the same page there. But then I like to get really clear on understanding all the things that Sally cares about in this problem domain, all the things that she sees as part of her solution. That's the O of Orca. I make sure that I also understand all the relationships between the objects, the R of Orca. And I further define these things in context of one another. So define the things and then define the things in context of each other by figuring out the relationships. So that's the O and the R of Orca. Then, only then do I start to brainstorm all the things that Sally would want to do to those things. So what CTAs do the objects offer up? The C of Orca. What are the really what are the affordances of those objects? What what kind of handles do we want to put on those objects so Sally can start manipulating them in a way that makes a whole lot of sense to her? And so all of this helps me build this really clear structure for each object. Um, so when I go into cataloging each attribute for each object, the A of Orca, um, I have a really, really good idea on how that object needs to be structured, okay? So after iterating on the objects and the relationships and the CTAs and the attributes multiple times, then I start designing the interactions that happen once somebody clicks one of those CTAs. Okay, and I'm gonna get into later how you can actually do user testing. You can actually user test your CTAs before you actually do all the work of interaction design, which is a lot of the work, right? <laughs> a lot of the work. That's when you get into edge cases and error handling and all that kind of complexity. So you really wanna make sure your objects and your CTAs are right before you get into interaction design so you don't waste your time and design interactions that don't matter to the user. Okay, so once I fully understand that Sally is a ninja and she's armed with only a broomstick and that she is faced with a team of zombies, I can now better design the interaction she'll take. Okay, so in retrospect, when I think about how I was working before, I really feel like I was kind of doing my job 
backwards for the first two thirds of my career, putting that inter- those all those interaction flows before building this object oriented framework for those interaction flows to happen within. Okay, I want to make sure that that environment is right, well, the objects are all right, the relationships are all right. Um, that I get the right CTAs on them and that I really understand the structure of each object. And then I'm going to go in and I'm going to design all my interaction flows. And this works so much better, so much better than jumping straight into interaction flows. Okay, so going back to our social network that helps chefs trade recipes requiring exotic ingredients. So what I would first, I would figure out that this is a system of chefs and recipes and ingredients. I would identify those objects before worrying about what the onboarding process looks like or how exactly a chef posts a recipe. So what is this CTA matrix and why is it important? I think we may have already just really beat the dead horse on why it's important, Um, but I'm gonna go into that a little bit more. I'm gonna really sell you on this CTA matrix. Okay, so calls to action are the main entry point to interaction flows. So if an interaction flow is a conversation between the system and the user, the CTA is the user's opening line to start that conversation. Like I was saying before, it's the affordance, it's the tip of the iceberg. So once you know your objects and their relationships, you can um, you can add possible CTAs to your objects, basically like putting a stake in the ground that says interaction design might go here. And these stakes in the ground, these CTAs can be captured using the CTA matrix. So the CTA matrix is just a fancy list of CTAs organized around your objects by user role. So we're gonna have user role along the x-axis and objects along the y-axis, and we're gonna brainstorm CTAs in the middle. And if that makes 100% sense to you, then you can just stop listening to this right now and go make your CTA matrix, okay? But I'm gonna go into it a lot more in a lot more detail um, and give you some more examples. So when we're doing this, since all interactions on the internet have a direct object, users are creating or manipulating or moving or purchasing things, we basically are brainstorming functionality by thinking about what a user wants to do, not in our system as a whole, but specifically what a user wants to do to objects in our system. So beyond helping us shift gears between this holistic nature of system design to the more compartmentalized work of uh, interaction design, creating a CTA matrix is gonna help us in three key ways. Okay, it builds that bridge from big picture system to creating really a laundry list of interaction design. And it's also gonna help with this. It's gonna help you think about interactions more creatively. It's going to validate, help you validate those interactions early. And also as an added bonus, it's going to ultimately help you write project estimates with greater accuracy. So let's explore those three benefits a little bit more before creating our own CTA matrix. So. How does a CTA matrix and brainstorming your CTAs object by object actually help you improve brainstorming and help you be more creative? So this is all about creative constraints. So we know that if if I ask you to design a chair, um, it's gonna be hard for you to be creative. But if I ask you to design a chair for somebody over 65 that has a budget of $25 and the chair needs to be able to be flat packed and shipped from overseas at a low cost, that is going to spurn a lot, spurn, spawn, spawn a lot more creativity. So simply 
understanding your objects here is going to help you determine the things that a user might want to do with them. So we know that Sally wants to destroy zombies, but only after we figure out that they're fast and smart and light averting zombies can we be prepared to design exactly how she's going to do it. So when we think about interactions in the context of an object, we give ourselves a structure for brainstorming, right? So when we think about potential features by considering CTAs on each object, we're more likely to not only be creative, but also comprehensive. So for example, let's think about the object ingredient in our chef network app. What are all the things that our chef might want to do to an ingredient? So let's think about this. So maybe they um, mark the ingredient as a favorite. So if they can like favorite an ingredient or maybe even say that they have the ingredient. So um, to actually uh, say like, I've got this, I've got this ingredient in my, um, in my kitchen. Um, claim, they can claim, maybe they can claim that they're an expert on the ingredient. Um, maybe they can add the ingredient to a shopping list, check availability at local stores. Um, maybe they want to follow the ingredient so that they get alerted when new recipes are posted that use that ingredient. Um, maybe they want to add a tip for using this ingredient. So like add a buying tip, like make sure that the, you know, the avocado as it feels like, XYZ. <laughs> I don't know a really good tip on buying an avocado. Um, make sure that the, oh, I know what it is. Uh, make sure that the little, the little nub on the avocado pops off before you cut it into your avocado. I just learned that one. So maybe they want to add a tip. That's another thing. So by using the object framework, I might uncover functionality I would have not, otherwise not considered if my brainstorming was too broad and unconstrained. So if I'm just thinking about what are some functionality within the chef network and not thinking specifically about an ingredient. Some of that cool stuff like checking availability or following an ingredient or even claiming you're an expert on the ingredient. I might not think about that if I'm not thinking about it object by object. So in a nutshell, structure gives creative thinking more support than amorphous product goals and squishy user objectives. Those are good too. You want to have those. You definitely want to have those but have those and then think about your functionality object by object. Okay, how is this gonna help us with user testing? Well, we can validate our CTAs early. So you can user test your system of objects and the actions a user might take on them before spending all those long hours on interaction design. So here's what you do. Just create a prototype that simply lets users navigate from one object to another, exploring the environment. So from detail page to detail page, you've already uh, figured out all the relationships. So they should actually be able to navigate through those relationships, right? With all of your nested objects. Um, so through observation and interviews, you can see if your system resonates, resonates with their mental model. So do you have the right objects? Do the relationships make sense? Does it feel good and natural to navigate? And are the right, quote, buttons on the objects? So whatever your CTAs are, you can just put those on the object. They don't have to do anything. You can just have that follow button on the ingredient. And as they're you know, going through this, then you can ask a question about that. You can start a discussion about that and you can sort of gauge a user's reaction without them actually having to click and check out the UI of what it's like to follow. That's just basic best practices on, on user interface design, okay? What we want to know is do they want to follow an ingredient or do they want to follow a chef or do they want to follow both? 
Or do they want to follow a recipe? Does that even make sense? So these are the kind of conversations we want to have before they, they, we actually go and design all the intricacies of the interaction. So in a nutshell, talk to your users about the button before designing what happens when they click it. All right, estimates. So we can est create estimates with interaction design in mind. And as I just established, as we just talked about, interaction design is time consuming, it's resource devouring, it's a monster. It's a, it, sometimes it's gonna be like 80% of your screen design is gonna be an interaction design. So we have to design a conversation between the user and the system. And that user is unpredictable. And so then we get into error handling, error prevention, edge cases, animated transitions, all those delicate micro interactions. So basically all the details that ensure that users don't feel dumb or think the system is dumb, a lot of that is happening in interaction design. It's super important. It's super important to get it right, but you wanna make sure you're designing the right interactions first, right? Before you spend a lot of time worrying about all those delicate intricacies. So the amount of complexity interaction design your product requires will critically impact your timeline, your budget, your staffing requirements, uh, perhaps more than any other design factor. Um, so when you're armed with that CTA matrix, especially if you go, when you go into more detail on that CTA matrix, um, we're gonna talk a little bit more what a high fidelity CTA matrix looks like, you can feel really confident knowing you have solid insight into the interaction design that's going to be handled by your team that you're responsible for, especially if you go through prioritization too, and you actually prioritize those CTAs and you all agree, like, this is what phase one looks like. This is what we're releasing first. Um, you can kind of forecast the coming storm of interaction design and better prepare for it. Okay. So if you love the idea of better, more creative brainstorming and early validation and estimating with better accuracy, uh, and also just making your, your experience more intuitive because you are rooting all of your CTAs solidly in the, their direct object. Let's go, let's get into it. Let's create, let's look at how you might actually create this amazing CTA matrix. Okay. So like I said before, all you're going to do here is you're going to list your objects along the y-axis. So in this case, we're going to have chefs, recipes, and ingredients. And then you're going to list your roles along the x-axis. So in this case, let's say we have chefs. Maybe we have chef assistants too because um, often maybe like the chef will create the recipe and then their assistant, their sous chef or something, will actually input it. So let's say that these are kind of like, these are very fancy chefs. So we have a chef, we have a chef assistant. Um, that's sort of like maybe even uh, assigned through the application uh, that helps them kind of input um, the recipes and, and do some of that busy work. And then maybe we also have admins. So we have three user roles that we're going to be worried about, chefs, chef, chef assistants, and admins. And so now we basically brainstorm <laughs> at each intersection. Uh, what does each role do to each thing? And some of this might be brainstorming. Some of it might just be looking at our requirements and mapping our requirements to this call to action matrix. Um, so for example, let's say we're, let's just worry about chef right now. So when we think about chef, what does a chef want to do to a chef? <laughs> right? Okay. So it depends on if it's this chef or other chefs that I'm looking at, but a chef needs to be able to create themselves, create their own account, edit their own account, even remove themselves 
um, from the system as well. So delete their account. So CRUD basically belongs on the chef. They might actually follow other chefs too. Um, and maybe they can even like give kudos to a chef, which is different than following a chef, but just like giving them a thumbs up, which might increase their popularity ranking. So maybe there's like a, a follow, which means that you get updates and then some sort of favorite or give kudos or like show respect for or something like that. Um, if they do something really cool, if they post a good recipe or maybe that just is on the recipe. Okay. So now let's go to recipe. So a chef would want to be able to create, edit, delete a recipe, right? Uh, favorite other recipes. Um, and then let's go to ingredients. So we have create, edit, delete, all the other stuff we talked about. Um, let's think also about um, substituting, suggesting a substitute ingredient, um, which could be really interesting. So here's this exotic ingredient, but if you don't have this ingredient, here are some other ingredients that you might want to substitute in there. So that could be cool as well. So then what we do is we just go through the other roles. So what would a chef assistant do? What would an admin do? Okay. And there's going to be some kind of trickle up permissions. So if the lowest level can do it, usually the higher levels can do it. And there's ways in the call to action matrix that we sort of use to notate that to make it a little bit easier, but we're not going to get into that right now. Okay, so this initial CTA brainstorming is absolutely great to do while workshopping. This is a wonderful workshop to do. So after you've defined your objects, hopefully done that collaboratively as well, um, get a cross-functional team together. So get everyone's ideas on how a user might act on these objects. And you might end up with dozens of potential CTAs. So that's cool, that's all right. So in essence, you and your team, what's happening here when you run this CTA brainstorming workshop sounds so innocuous, right? In essence, what you and your team are doing is having a conversation about the features of a product, but within this really helpful framework of objects and their CTAs. So essentially you're taking that big hairy process of determining features and disguising it as this simple, fun, collaborative activity. Guys, all we're doing here is we're brainstorming what buttons need to go on our objects. That, that's all we're doing, right? So each object, I would say, might need anywhere from five to 15 minutes. Um, so block out an hour or two based on that. So think about every single intersection. So if it's a three by three matrix, um, you're going to need probably about 90 minutes, right? If it gets a little bit bigger, you might need a two to three hour workshop for this. Um, so just as a, as a kind of rule of thumb, um, and you're just going to be, you're going to be so surprised by the wealth of ideas that emerge from this and how much clarity you and your team get, um, on what your product should actually do. And not to mention where you disagree, which is valuable in its own right. But at this point in the process, just get everything down. And then later you can prioritize those and, and eliminate stuff. This, at this point, we're just trying to generate ideas, um, and, and discuss what, what do people want to do to these objects? So in our chef example, when we were talking about suggesting a replacement ingredient, so something interesting happened there. So when we have suggesting a, suggested a replacement ingredient, what we need to make sure we have when we think about our relationships is that an ingredient has zero to many replacement ingredients. So we actually kind of go back to the R of the ORCA process, all right? So 
this happens all the time. Like, it, for example, even um, create a tip. So a chef might be able to create a tip about an ingredient. Um, that doesn't result in a new relationship, um, ingredient to ingredient relationship, but it does rep- uh bring us to a new object, the tip object. So sometimes if you find yourself saying, oh, we should be able to review this recipe. Okay. Review. Review has structure. It has instances. It has purpose. It is an object, guys. So through the call to action uh, process, you might come up with more objects. You might come up with attributes that you want to make sure to um, to note for when you get to the A of ORCA. So this is all to say be prepared to iterate. <laughs> so the ORCA process in of itself is iterative. We have four rounds, discovery, requirements, prioritization, then we finally get to sketching. So it is iterative, but then you're going to have micro iterations within there. So there's all sorts of iteration. So just be prepared for that. Okay. So this is, as you've done this initial brain dump, all good. Now, when we get into high fidelity, basically what we're doing is we're going to move over to a spreadsheet. So when we go in, this is what we ha- what happens when we go into requirements. So we're at the, the second C. So we do ORCA multiple times, like I was just saying. We're at that second C. So the first, the first C of ORCA and discovery run this kind of big collaborative brainstorming session. Now when we get into requirements, we're getting into nitty gritty. So we got to move into a spreadsheet. So basically, we move into a spreadsheet. I'm going to link to an example of that spreadsheet, a template that you can copy from Google uh, Google Sheets. Um, but basically, what your columns are is you've got an object. What, what object is being acted upon? What's the CTA? Who's doing it? So all the stuff that you just talked about. But then we're going to add a few more columns. So we're going to add a Y column. What, what is the reason somebody might want to do this? So really dig deep on that Y. Not, oh, they're going to click favorite because they think it's a favorite. Okay, go a little bit deeper there. Go a little bit wider there. Um, What is the motivation? And really make sure you can articulate that because if you can't, like, that's a good time for discussion with your team. Can you really articulate the why? Do you have research that backs up that why? So go through the process for every single CTA and make sure that you can even write just one or two sentences within this matrix about why. And then what we want to get into is the when. So this is the context. They're, these are two different things. They're, they, it feels like they overlap quite a bit. When is when in the process does this happen? So when are you expecting that somebody is going to be clicking onto this? So this is where we start thinking about user journey. So when is a user going to be substituting an ingredient? So if I want to, if a chef wants to suggest a substitute ingredient, they're probably going to be doing that as they're going through a recipe that uses that ingredient, right? So that might be a win. And the why, why would they want to do that? Well, because they want to help out the system as a whole, because they want to show their expertise. Um, Maybe by suggesting a substitute ingredient, they could get kudos for that. So maybe there is, so now I'm starting to think about like, when somebody takes that action, how does it show that they've taken that action? So maybe on the chef's profile, we show like, here's all the suggestions that they've made for substitute ingredients. And people can, um, can kind of give them a, give them a, um, and thank you for suggesting that. So the real motivation here is to prove themselves as an expert. 
all right, and to continue to show themselves an expert within this within this community, right? So I'm getting into that kind of level of detail here. So the cool thing about this is this starts to build out a proto user story. So user stories are usually uh, broken down into sort of this format. As a user role, whatever that user role is, I want to do some sort of function so that I can, and there's your reason, okay? So if I say, as a chef, I want to be able to suggest a, a substitute ingredient so that I can help out my community and show my expertise. And then we can even build it out a little bit more by adding that win while I am uh, going through a recipe and I see something that I want to be able to substitute. So this helps us build out these proto user stories. So basically every row in your call to action matrix, we're breaking it up into this who, uh, who, what, <laughs> why, when, um, but we can write user stories from that very easily. So it's a really nice transition into your user stories. Okay, so once we get into prioritization, so that's the third round, we add a few more columns. We add a where column, and that is for user priority. So where in the OUX world, it's basically what we're talking about is how far does a user have to reach to click that CTA? Okay, so is it really easy to access? Is it right there on the card? They don't even have to dive into the detail page. Um, or do they have to go into the detail page to do it? So um, something like suggest a substitute ingredient, we have to decide how often is somebody going to be actually clicking on that. So in my little ingredient card that I might be seeing on a recipe, does a, can a user just click suggest substitute ingredient right from that, right from the recipe, basically, looking at the, the ingredient card? Or do they have to click into a, a detail page? We also talk about batching. So... Um, suggesting a substitute ingredient, I wouldn't want to batch that. I wouldn't want to select multiple ingredients and say, all these things you can substitute with butter. Probably not, but maybe I might want to, um, if I'm following a bunch of chefs, I might want to batch that. So another column that we add during prioritization is the phase column. So this is more a business priority or also like developer's choice, which ones make the most sense to develop in what order. Um, so we're looking at prioritization from a user perspective as well as a business and technology perspective. And this is going to help us determine, okay, which what sprint are we going to tackle which call to action in? Okay. Um, there's a couple other columns you can add. So one is a notes slash questions column. Another one is uh, um, interaction ideas. So actually writing out what that interaction might look like in words before you start designing screens. So just a place so you can put all of your ideas on what that interaction might look like. Um, that's good to actually put into this uh, CTA matrix. And another column you might want to add is the feedback. So how are you going to give your user feedback that this thing was done successfully? So you can start writing success messages. You can, even if this is just a note on like, there will be a success message. Um, or even let's say when favoriting the icon is going to change, um, change color and get larger. Um, I don't love it when the icon just changes color <laughs> because sometimes it's hard to tell. So starting to think about how does a user know that this thing was successfully done or not successfully done? Um, so 
there's one of the main problems with user experience design is our lack of feedback because often as UX designers, we don't take that extra step of designing in early on thinking about how are we going to actually confirm to a user what happened here? So I love adding that column as well. So a couple optional columns. And if you think of additional ones that you might want to add to a CTA matrix, please let me know. I would love to hear about that. So you can let me know by tweeting at me at Sophia VUX. I would love to hear about that. Show me some screenshots of your call to action matrix. All right, guys, I hope this was really helpful. I hope this helps you think about how that kind of, how the sea of Orca really comes to life um, and how you can leverage this to start thinking about your interaction design before you start designing screens and thinking about your interaction design in the context of an object first approach. Let me know how it goes tweet at me. Um, if you are interested in learning more about object oriented UX, if this is really exciting to you, make sure to get on the OAUX newsletter. So that's rewiredux.com slash newsletter. All right, y'all happy OAUXing and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit objectorientedux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing! <laughs>